The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put a little spring in your step and a little scotch in your snifter. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 247 with guest Mark Pollock, recorded live Tuesday, May 22, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring the VB.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who got the show up late this week, because he was up all night restoring his uncle's Guy Lombardo record collection... Carl Franklin. Hey there, welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin. I'm here in Connecticut, New London, Connecticut to be exact, the hippie side of Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the Martha Stewart side of Connecticut. So oh, this is right. the yeah, this is the southeastern coast of Connecticut. And uh, on the west coast of Canada in Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. And over here in Canada, we call this area Lotus Land. Why is that? Um, it's just that the idea that laid back mellow people eat lotus flowers. I don't know. It's, it's one of those weird things. The guys in Toronto are always envious. Okay. Lotus Land. Lotus Land. Hi. I, I'm coming to you live from Lotus Land. I could, you know, I could totally chop up what you just said to say, I'm high in Lotus Land. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I've told you already about the mowing the mushrooms thing, so right. you know what it's like around here. It's uh, Lewis Carroll would have loved to have lived there, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, Vancouver can be an adventure. Hey, you know, I just made up a joke. Tell me what you think. How, ma- how many Mac developers does it take to copy a file? I don't know. How many? What's a file? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. I can't wait for the letters to come in on that one. Here you go. Here they come. Well, Richard, let's just get right to it. Here's the segment we call Better Know a Framework. And your Better Know a Framework factoid for this show is the process class, also in system diagnostics. And system.diagnostics.process is something you know if you've ever done sort of like shelling out to run a program, run a console application or run a Windows application or something. Maybe you want to read the standard output that comes out of that console application. You can use a process to do that and process the standard output and also send standard input to it. But did you know that you can also create a process object by using the method getProcessById? Or get current process or get process by name. Nice. And then you pass the name of the process as a string and then you get the process. And in the process, you can get the the threads, the modules. You can get the uh, process handle, of course, the ID. You can get the threads that are in that process. You can get uh, uh, you can enable events. 
and get events that happen on that process. You can get the main window handle, the main window title. You can get the working set, the machine name. Of course, you can specify the machine name too. If you have access to other machines, you can get info about processes on those machines. You can also get information about memory, uh, priorities and threads, uh, all sorts of great information about the process. So uh, you can close the process, kill it. You can get the start time. Um, really, really useful. If you're doing anything working with other applications and you need to control or, or view or monitor what's going on in a process, you can create a process object against the running process or you can create a new process and like you would do to shell out. So that's it. Better no framework for today is system.diagnostics.process. Nice. Check it out. Awesome. So, Richard, you usually, uh, at this time, read an email. Yeah, uh, but, you know, I've been doing that for a while, so I thought maybe I'd give it a pass today. So, this is a good opportunity for me to ask you how Run As Radio is going. Oh, Run As? We're having a great time. Of course, we were at uh, TechEd along with uh, you. So, of course, I'm being a little bipolar here. I was .NET Rock some of the day and Run As Radio some of the day as well. And Strange Loop some of the day, too. You were and doing a lot with Strange Loop. As well. Loop. Uh, yeah. you, it was a fun, I've never seen a guy change shirts more often at TechEd. <laughs> yes, I was. I switched shirts four, five, six times a day, depending on where I needed to be. And you switch shirts in the fishbowl, which isn't exactly private. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I wore a t-shirt underneath. <laughs> Didn't want to terrify anybody. You know, tried to be civilized. You never saw anybody with a video camera pointed at you pulling up which your is, pants. That was which good. is funny because you know I was in a video recording booth. <laughs> So how's it going? How's Runass going? It's great. We've got three excellent shows at TechEd. Uh, interview just the sort of people you want, folks like uh, Isaac Royball, who was uh, one of the IIS 7 guys, all Microsoft folks, because they're generally hard to get at. But at TechEd, they're right there. So it was an opportunity to really look at the new technologies, network access protection and and uh, the new management features in IS7 and so on. So uh, we really had a great time with that. And it was actually the first time Greg Hughes and I had met face-to-face. Wow. We'd done 10 shows together, all remote, and had never met. So TechEd was the first time we were actually sitting together and you know, had a, an excellent time in that respect. The uh, Things are going really well. Listenership is up. People seem to be enjoying it. I think we got the format right. Half hour is about right for the way people want to listen. And as far as downloads and stuff, May was like, was May the first full month that first you had to measure? Month. That's right. And you had what, about 22,000 downloads or something like that? 22,000 is about right. That's pretty good, Richard. Getting there for basically a soft launch. We just put it out there to see what people think, and we'll uh, we'll hype it up later. It'd be interesting to see what uh, TechEd does to run as radio. Right. I guess they're doing some cross-promotion with the shows that you got out of TechEd, right? Right. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. But bit by bit, uh, the show is uh, coming along nicely. Excellent. All right, then. Let's introduce the Code Camps with the Code Camp music. And let me lead off with the Raleigh Code Camp. That's this weekend, June 23rd at shrinkster.com slash P-E-B. Followed by Developer, 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 which is happening in Reading in the UK, June 30th, shrinkster.com slash P-8-0. Then in July, July 7th and 8th, the Code Camp South Australia in Adelaide at shrinkster.com slash PKH. Followed by the Central Coast Code Camp in San Luis Obispo, California, September 22nd and 23rd at shrinkster.com slash PWA. And then there's the .NET Summer Camp 2007, September 24th to 28th. In Leipzig, Germany. Ah, so this is a track put on by the user groups in Leipzig, and they've created a track specifically for students. It's only 10 euros if you're a student, but it costs more if you're not a student. You can go if you want. It's just going to cost you more. And that's at shrinkster.com slash PWB. And Greg Brill at Infusion is still taking people from the .NET Rocks listener base to work in Manhattan. And uh, for a year, you can live rent-free in Manhattan. That's part of the deal. If you're interested, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, Richard, let's bring on Mark. Mark Pollock has worked extensively in the financial sector as an architect and developer on various front office trading systems that involved a mixture of Microsoft and Java technologies. Mark has been a core spring 
developer, which is a Java technology, since 2003 and founded its Microsoft counterpart Spring.net in 2004. This year, Mark has joined Interface 21 and will continue to lead and develop Spring.net. Prior to this, Mark was a founding partner at Code Street LLC, an independent software vendor in the financial services industry. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Yeah, good to be back. So the last time you were on was back in uh, 2004 with Don Box and Ted, Ted Neward. Neward. Yeah, yeah, and that's it, right. That's and right. You were talking about Spring then. I guess it was brand new then. Yeah, it was in a bit of the early days, but uh, we had uh, some you know functionality that was already working, the, the core functionality, and uh, we've you know grown a lot since then. As uh, you know, I guess we'll get to. I just remember them ganging up on you and feeling, oh man, don't do this to my guest. <laughs> I don't know if that was the first time that the uh, ORM Vietnam reference was mentioned, but that took uh, me by surprise. <laughs> yeah. By uh, Ted Neward. Yeah. Well, you know, enough about that. Let's talk <laughs> about uh, let's talk about what Spring.net is, and then uh, maybe what's changed since the last time we talked. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, yes, yeah, Spring.net is a, an open source application framework, which you know, it's a very general statement, uh, but uh, what it aims to do is be used in any of your runtime environments. You might have WinForms, WCF, ASP.NET, and its focus has basically been two core value propositions. One is application configuration, uh, how different objects get references to their dependencies, otherwise commonly known as dependency injection. Right. The other part of that is uh, aspect-oriented programming basically how you can decorate objects with additional behavior that you might not otherwise be able to do through inheritance. So these two sort of concepts are the foundation is what we released first. The areas where we've grown out have been uh, in something we call portable service abstraction. And what this lets you do is take any ordinary so-called plain object, and by plain object, this is just the uh, name for a traditional class that is does not have any sort of magic base class like Marshall by ref right. or any particular attributes associated with a technology like, uh, let's say, you know, web method or service component or something like this. Uh, and we decorate it by adding appropriate attributes or base classes at runtime, essentially building up uh, a type at runtime appropriate to the environment. So this allows us to so-called export any object you have, let's say your business service class, as either a web service, .NET remoting service, WCF service. So this gives you a lot of flexibility, almost essentially uh, delegating the decision of what your architecture you know, might be until later. Yeah, it sounds like a dynamic, uh, dynamic language feature. Um, I mean, it's the types are generated at runtime, so that's similar to you know, requirements of dynamic languages. Okay. It's much more focused. It's really a very special purpose uh, type builder. It takes your class and dynamically wraps it, doing the appropriate inheritance or adding the appropriate attributes that you specify in the configuration file generally. Uh, for example, uh, you might need some you know, not often used attributes for uh, XML marshalling and web services. Uh, right. But the boilerplate stuff is done for you with a very convenient you know, XML syntax uh, that uh, is the configuration of what we call the uh, container, which is the heart of the uh, code artifact that is responsible for creating your objects, configuring them, and in addition, potentially wrapping them or decorating them with this particular behavior. Maybe inheriting from Marshall by ref, maybe adding a um, an attribute, and in terms of AOP, potentially adding what is called uh, an interceptor chain, basically what you would like to do in terms of code before actually entering a method. If you sort of envision it as a ballpark announcer saying, okay, you know, in the code, I'm going to now enter the method. I'm entering, I'm leaving. Those points are places you can add functionality. Uh, this is, you know, come up now in Enterprise Library 3 as a policy injection. So okay. people out there might be familiar with it uh, in those uh, in that kind of terminology. So this is the kind of is seems like the kind of technology that you would use after the fact when you already have um, objects out there in a framework that now you want to just you know give them some added functionality, but you don't necessarily want to 
do a big refactoring. Is that, is uh, that that's, accurate? That's definitely one very popular use case. For example, if you'd like to, let's say, add monitoring or some sort of notification, right? then after the fact, uh, and that's very important because it's not invasive, you can create these decorators. Uh, but what it does for you, sort of, if you're doing sort of greenfield development, is it lets you separate these particular things like exception management or even caching, uh, even transaction management, which is very powerful. Um, it lets you know that this is going to be handled someplace else other than in your method. So if you're doing a remote procedure call, and suppose you wanted to say, oh, I need to have... Uh, need to retry in case of error, I need to log in case of error, things like this. In your core code, in your method, you don't have to put a whole bunch of stuff in your catch block. Basically, you say, this method does one thing, it's concerned about talking to the other side, that's all it does. I know that I can add appropriate aspects to add this functionality later. So even when you're doing new coding, it lets you focus uh, your attention so that the class has that one responsibility, only responsible for communication not responsible for, you know, error handling and whatever else you might like to uh, add to, let's say, you know, typically a catch block in this case I'm giving. So in, in that sense, it really complements a lot object-oriented design because your objects become focused. They have one responsibility, which is always kind of what the intention was. But as time goes on, of course, you know, uh, gets other responsibilities unintentionally. Usually these are sort of the... Um, adverbs they say of the requirements sure it should be a secure application it should be all you know uh, calls to the service layer should be logged things like that that uh, don't naturally lend themselves to uh, a single inheritance because in that layer you might have multiple inheritance points and this buys you know as i'm hearing you talk i'm immediately thinking why would i bother with this why don't i refactor why don't i just add more code and recompile and because that's what we have been doing up till now. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a new. I mean, it's not new. It's been around, but it's you know, I think coming to the, different, to the front sure. in uh, in Microsoft uh, technologies now. I mean, the most popular thing on the Java side is, is Aspect J, uh, which is for uh, Java technology for doing uh, aspect oriented development. But you know, to answer your question, the old way you have a big chance of errors of omission. Yes. Right. So imagine you have thirty service classes. And each one has 15 methods. I got to go through each one and make sure they have the appropriate try-catch statements. Um, and you know, furthermore, what if I want to change it later? Right? I got to go back. Change and them all. So, yeah. So you have basically the same concept, right, which is do error handling. Now spread probably, I don't know, 300 times throughout your code base. So it's not modular. Right. So what yeah. this lets you do is modularize that error handling part, put it in one spot one aspect, and then say, where would you like to apply it? And let's sort of sprinkle its functionality across all of the different methods that you basically choose in some sort of, let's say, regex-like way based on namespaces and methods and so on. As you said before, Mark, aspect-oriented programming isn't new, um, but, you know, it's not something that most .NET uh, developers uh, come across uh, every day. What are some of the other technologies, maybe on different platforms, I guess, maybe Java, maybe uh, uh, wh- maybe even .NET. What are some of the other technologies out there that have been doing this? Sure. Um, on the Java side, sort of granddaddy of them all is uh, Aspect J, which is an extension to the Java languages. So you can write what they call an aspect, which is basically the code and where you like the code applied. Right. Um, and that you know has a development environment inside of Eclipse. And the other thing that's become popular as well is the Spring AOP package, which has uh, integration with Aspect J. And you know, the interesting part of this is that Interface 21, the company behind Spring, basically is you know, hired on as the chief scientific officer, the founder of uh, Aspect J, Adrian Collier. So there's deep huh. experience you know, in terms of Spring and Aspect J. And on the .NET side, you know, we've brought that technology stack over and the fundamental you know, piece of technology in this is essentially making dynamic proxies. And huh. dynamic proxies are kind of, in some sense, like a, um, uh, what the, the JDK offers out of the box, but you have to actually code it up by hand in some manner. Uh, built into the .NET technology stack in terms of .NET remoting, Marshall by Ref 
is this transparent proxy concept. So if people have ever used you know, .NET remoting and have come across you know, trans, uh, transparent proxy, mm-hmm. then that, in fact, uh, is some form uh, of this. Um, the Enterprise Library 3, which introduced policy injection, which is sort of an AOP-like... Um, AOP? Yeah, aspect-oriented programming ah. you know, framework as well. Then um, the route that they chose to implement it was through this uh, built-in technology .NET for transparent proxies. We chose a, a dynamic type generation approach. And so, you know, Enterprise Library is not a place to look. There's another open source project called uh, Aspect Sharp. That, that's another uh, one. So there are a few out there. Yeah, that's the and, one that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, yeah. they all bring a similar value proposition. Um, maybe one other thing to add is, you know, it might get stuck in everyone's head that, well, this is just interception, just decoration, that's AOP. Well, the other part of it is something called introductions or mix-ins. And what this lets you do is add an interface implementation to a class at runtime, let's say. So you can add an iNotification uh, interface implementation to make your class notifiable. It sounds very Ruby-like. I mean, very sort of Python dynamic adding, you know, uh, adding functionality on the fly. Yeah, um, is that, are you creeping towards that? Well, in some sense, you could say AOP is, in fact, more structured in terms of this functionality than Ruby. Uh, Ruby or other dynamic languages basically give you a single hook, which says, I don't know what this method is, handle it. Yeah. Right? Now, you might add a method called uh, do my special work. And then another framework or another library somewhere else might implement the same extension, do my favorite work. Now you have a conflict. So some people make the comparison uh, that is sort of like, you know, uh, coding uh, C C in a C++ style, right? That in principle, you don't have to go to C++. You could mimic almost everything you wanted in C code. That's sort of the analogy between, you know, a dynamic language where the hook is essentially, I don't know what method this is, to a structured AOP framework. Yeah, and that, that was always the red flag I had about dynamic languages. It's just because the implementation, the code you write, is clean and concise doesn't mean that what's going on behind the scenes isn't a nightmare. I mean, could potential nightmare. It harkens back to the days of early VB and ASP with VB script and Yeah, I was know. thinking ASP as well, that sort of tangled layering of code that you can't really see uh, which piece does what? It's write-only code. Uh, yeah, I mean, there is definitely stuff going on under the covers, which is kind of the positive part, right? A lot of the assumptions that go into you know the naming conventions, which is a, a plus and a minus. But I think a lot of people have been finding more positives and negatives in in, in the approach from from what I've you know read. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, a hardcore Ruby or, or Python guy. I dabbled a bit, but. Yeah, we've sort of come to the conclusion on .NET Rocks anyway that uh, without a sort of test-first, test-driven methodology, you're sort of uh, flying without, you know, a net. Very dangerous for dynamic development without TDD. Yeah. I mean, I think TDD stands on its own, even independent, right? Sure. uh, Yeah. And that, you know, is the other thing that a lot of the um, dependency injection or, you know, these uh, configuration-based frameworks bring is that a lot of times your code has inside of hidden dependencies you don't know about, so it makes it hard to test because they have all these other extra parts that you know maybe assume certain parts of a runtime, maybe assume a database. And so when you use uh, these frameworks such as Spring to you know, configure your classes, you're much more likely to use interfaces where they're appropriate. This makes it very natural to doing this. So when you go back to testing, it's very easy to insert a stub implementation or a mock implementation to isolate a particular class under test and do unit testing. So there's sort of a lot of, you know, other aspects around the, you know, using the container uh, for configuration that, you know, come into play other than just surely, you know, having a sort of very generic object factory that news and objects and sets properties in a very flexible way and sets references to other objects to sort of build up the, you know, in-memory object graph that, you know, defines your application or, Wires different layers of your application together. 
So there's that testing aspect also that's that's important that encourages and makes it much more realistic to think you can start testing your classes. So is this AOP style uh, feature the biggest thing, or are there other things? Are there uh, things not related to this in Spring.net? Yeah, in Spring. Spring is very broad as an application framework. Uh, people make the analogy of, of an iceberg where you see just a little bit of a tip, but below is a huge, huge beast. So Spring, for example, doesn't implement a transaction manager, but it does mm-hmm. have data access framework that makes it easy to write the uh, data access layer, for example, in a particular you know, style. And so you know, there, there's that part. There's uh, ASP.NET Web Framework, which has things like you know, dependency injection and configuration of your ASP.NET pages and controls, yeah. but also bidirectional data binding, some nice internationalization features, let's say for images you don't ordinarily find. Um, and then we have sort of integration with other third-party libraries, for example, nHibernate. There's a lot of boilerplate code to writing nHibernate uh, mm. or mapper code. And this, you know, is uh, these ideas and these concepts uh, are coming essentially, you know, uh, in the case of nHibernate from, from the Java world. Uh, and, you know, it was very straightforward to port that. Things like the ASP.NET framework were basically, you know, different than what was done on the Java side because the, the run times are so different. You know, one right. is controller-based uh, versus page-centric in ASP.NET uh, approach. So the, the overall goal is to apply common themes across both, both platforms where it's appropriate and then address pain points, for example, in different areas. So we, we touch on quite a lot. We touch on the presentation tier in terms of the ASP.NET framework. Hmm. Uh, the configuration, which in principle is so foundational that you can touch everything, then we have you know, a data access uh, layer um, to help writing a lot of boilerplate code, which is very elegant. Basically, you know, you can do one-liners, which you would never be able to do before if you were just using raw ADO.NET code. So are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates. RAD controls for ASP.NET, RAD controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep. Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of Rad Controls for ASP.NET. Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, Rad Controls Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Okay, uh, yeah, we should talk about uh, these these other things um, sure. because I think you know the question on everyone's mind is, well, you know, ADONet works just fine and integrates well with all the other systems in the framework. Um, you know, what what can you give me on top of that that I don't already have? Um, well, the raw ADO.NET API, I, I'd say, is is raw, right? I mean, you have a fair amount of constructs you're going to do all the time, probably two or three nested using statements, and you know, then, you know, if, for example, uh, if you'd like to, uh, let's say, iterate over a particular uh, result set, you have to worry about the readers and closing all the readers. And so what we do basically is provide a very simple uh, abstraction, it's very lightweight, that essentially manages all of that sort of resource stuff for you and lets you concentrate just on the bits that are important. So basically, if you were specifying a command text and wanted to, let's say, create an account object from a database, a domain object, from database, mm-hmm. uh, basically using anonymous delegates, you can say, okay, you know, uh, 
call this particular you know, ADO method. And inside the anonymous delegate, you just have to write the looping code. That's it. Everything else in terms of associating that command text with the command and uh, looping and stuff like this is done for you. You just basically write the little bit of code that is most important. And I think more importantly, kind of coupled with the um, sort of helper class for ADO.NET is uh, declarative transaction management, which is an application of AOP. And this is where I think the .NET stack kind of falls uh, by the wayside a little bit. Uh, you have enterprise services, which lets you do declarative transaction management at 1.1, right. and you can use, you know, in .NET 2.0, the system transactions namespace to uh, use a transaction scope. The problem with both of those, essentially, is that you're going to use distributed transactions. Unfortunately, at the current release of system transactions, if you would you know, have another re transactional resource in the same scope, it's going to get promoted, even though it's the same connection, to be a distributed transaction. And furthermore, in .NET 2.0, there aren't any transactional attributes. So you can't mark a method as being transactional. So what um, we offer is a framework for transaction management with three different transaction managers, and one of which is just regular single connection, single resource ADO.NET transactions, which you can then apply, for example, this transaction attribute and demarcate your methods, much like you would do in enterprise services, as transactional with the appropriate timeouts or you know, different options, isolation levels that uh, you would typically associate. And that, that's very powerful because ADO.NET is just one sort of transactional API, right? Uh, there's, you know, system transactions in .NET 2.0. Plus, if you look at any of the ORM tools, they also have their own semantics for creating and stopping a transaction. So because we have this abstraction at the top layer, you know, what this does is not only enable us to do declarative transaction management in a .NET 1.1 or 2.0 environment against a single local resource, but also in the same transaction to mix a Hibernate operation with an ADO.NET operation. Because at the fundamental level, they're sharing the same transaction. We take care of that boilerplate that kind of passes that transaction object around to the appropriate frameworks uh, so that everything is consistent. So that, there's a, that's a very, very powerful functionality for, uh, for creating data access layers. Mark, I'm... I'm thinking about the concept of a framework, actually. And my automatic reaction is that I load this first and I start building my app in it. But it seems to me this works the other way around, that I've got an application, I want to layer this framework into it. Maybe you could talk to me about how I'm going to use this in my existing application. Sure. Um, if you envision, let's say, a very uh, simple, I don't know, uh, architecture where you maybe have a service layer in the middle, uh, in the middle tier, and then the service layer that has to talk to a data access layer. One of the most natural places to apply Spring is basically how you hook up your service layer to the data access layer. Right. And you might come to mind all sorts of typical patterns. You might say, oh, "I like to use interfaces here and the services. I like to have my data access layer also be an in, uh, have implement a, a particular interface." And in principle, what we're doing now is just good object-oriented development. Uh, but what Spring does is then it says, okay, how do these two know about each other? And how can I configure them at runtime or make the changes very flexible? So you can you know, now introduce, in some sense, after the fact, but you're potentially coding knowing that you don't have to worry about a lot of the infrastructure to create a factory, to create the class that implements the interface. You don't have to implement you know, hundreds of factories because you have hundreds of so-called, you know, product, factory products you'd like to create. And so you're doing so, you know, your design, but you're not creating a lot of the boilerplate infrastructure. In this case, a lot of factory classes or abstract factory classes that return or, you know, for example, if you're doing a provider model in .NET, you'd have to implement four classes sort of for each product. And that can get very tedious in, in an application where you maybe have many, many things to create. So... It is a bit of a mixture, and that's sort of the beauty of it, is that it's non-invasive, right? You can use it where you think it's appropriate, not saying that you should replace every new statement you have in your application architecture and you know, hand over the control and configuration of that class to Spring. Basically, where you think it adds value, 
usually the first place it adds value is between the layers in your application. Right. Now, that makes sense in an existing app. If I'm starting from scratch, do I do something different? You know, if you if you I got a clean slate, not that this ever happens yeah, well, in real the, life. Yeah, yeah the, right. The thing that you uh, would do different is you probably never write any abstract factory class ever again. Right. You're probably mm-hmm. much more inclined to uh, you know do test driven development now because it's very easy to program to interfaces. You can now reasonably think that I don't have to you know go off and implement a whole abstract factory and all this boilerplate stuff just to make my class testable. So you start off basically thing knowing that I don't have to write a lot of that infrastructure. Yeah, I was just thinking that the real purpose that we use frameworks for, which is I want to write less code. Yep. Right. Yeah, and I got to I gotta imagine that's the whole reason we have Spring.net is you, you go through the frame, you go through the .NET framework and you say, okay, what can be simplified? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I'm looking here at the list of services that you touch in the framework, and uh, you began mentioning some of these before, and we talked a little bit about ADO.net and transactions, but also .NET remoting, enterprise services, web services, Windows services. Mm-hmm. Windows services. Yeah, Windows services is, is you know, probably the, the very simplistic. It's not a, it's really in the same camp as the other three, is that if you want to write a you know, Windows service, a.k.a. daemon, there's a little bit of extra boilerplate stuff normally you'd have to do, even though it's already quite easy with .NET. Yeah. So that just makes that a little bit easier. Okay. Uh, but the other three are really these portable service abstractions. You know, we just committed WCF support. Uh, so basically you take your ordinary, let's say, uh, you know, account service class and doesn't have any attributes on it, very plain, mm-hmm. and you use the remoting exporter to export it, let's say, as an SAO. Mm-hmm. And also importantly, on the other side, uh, we generate just based on very WCF-like, just based on the endpoint address and the interface, the client-side proxy. And a lot of times, you know, what this enables us to do, because we're in full control, is there's some quirk sometimes in the proxies generated by uh, the you know, out-of-the-box tools in, in Visual Studio or in, you know, the Microsoft SDK. So, for example, sometimes people, let's say, remote or put over web services data sets, right? Whether you want to do that or not is a whole other topic, but people do do it. And the default uh, proxy generated in uh, using you know, standard tools will essentially make a uh, new type for each of these data sets you remote. And that can get kind of confusing after a while because, you know, uh, you might have really, in fact, uh, different types without knowing it in your proxy classes. So our proxy you know, knows ahead of time you could isolate your data set objects in one assembly and reuse that, and you always be using the same type. So we get a lot of control, basically, by creating our own client-side uh, proxies. To overcome, again, some quirks you might find in, in the default implementations. Um, threading and concurrency support. What uh, You've got some interfaces and primitives around synchronization that uh, supposedly attack. I mean, that's a huge, a huge uh, issue right there. I mean, threading has always been the bane of software development, but... Sure. Do you, what do you guys do to ease the pain in that regard? Well, some of this uh, revolved around one one didn't actually have a semaphore class, so we introduced oh, right. a semaphore class. Nice. So, so that's there. So let's uh, just let's just go the whole way and tell everybody what a semaphore does. Sure. Uh, semaphore basically is a concurrency construct where you can control access to bits of code by sharing a token amongst the entire application, and it's the you know basically. Uh, you can take a token, and depending on how many tokens this semaphore is configured for, you can keep taking in the sense of a method asking for a token. And uh, if you're able to actually take this token, you can proceed into the block of code. If you can't, because all the tokens have been taken, the token count is zero, then you're kind of stuck there. And so this you know, is a sort of old-school way of doing synchronization as compared to just a lock statement. Right, because you really have to remember to release and put your token back in the pool. So you know sometimes uh, it's appropriate to use if you're doing very sophisticated concurrency uh, uh, yeah. you know, programming. But I think generally speaking, you know the the lock metaphor uh, that's built into .NET is, is the way to go. All these all these things, mutexes, semaphores, and locks—they're all the same thing. They just have different scopes. 
So, uh, you know, a lock deals with a lock object, which has to be in scope, and the, the object determines the scope. A mutex can be shared across different app domains and different threads, which is something uh, yeah, that yeah, of course, a lot yeah, can't of course, do. In this. Uh, very sophisticated. Uh, yeah, and a semaphore, as you said, is a sort of token base, where sort of like the lock object, except that it all comes from one place, and it's application-wide. The, the other stuff. important uh, class we have there is for thread local storage. Ah, uh, yes. Which, if you uh, really dig deep into it, has you know, different best practices if you're in a web environment where you would like to store it as compared to if you're in a non-web environment. And so this just sort of is a simple abstraction of where to store state uh, in a thread-safe manner. This is, in fact, used uh, under the covers when we uh, do our declarative transaction management so that the current transaction is stored uh, in the thread local uh, slot, let's say. And that's how you, know, you can get reference to it wherever you'd like uh, in your code base. Yeah. Thread local storage. Always a, always been an interesting little piece. And, and, of course, like you said, that does exist on the thread object in the .NET uh, framework. But, um, but you've done an, an abstraction here to make it... Uh, to add, make it more accessible in active server pages? Is that the... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you, yeah, the best place to stick it, you know, the state is is different depending on your runtime environment. Right. It's a sort of, you know, thing that uh, you know, a few people have blogged about. It's relatively esoteric, but very important. And so, again, this is yep. some of the infrastructure, right, this threading classes that you know, are helpful and, you know, stuff that's well-tested. You don't have to worry about. You could just... Use it out of the box. Speaking of storage, what's iResource? That's, that's also a particularly nice abstraction. Um, you know, it turns out, really, if you'd like to, there's no common base class for reading an input stream from a file and a URL. Right? They don't share a common base class right. or an assembly embedded resource. Right. So, what the iResource abstraction is basically a way to get an input stream from all these different places in a uniform way. Now that's nice. I that's one thing I've never really liked about uh the system IO namespace is yeah, I, yeah, what if it's at a URL? I mean, the implementation is different, but it's essentially the same thing. This file is over there, go get it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is exactly what that does. And uh, that's very nice for when we're, you know, talking about, you know, the spring configuration files, we can basically in a sort of URL syntax say get it from this assembly colon colon slash or get it from this file, whatever you like uh and uh, that resource implementation is pluggable, so you can put in your own protocol handlers. So if you'd like to pull information in, let's say, from a database, that's fine. Just you know, write the appropriate handler. Off you go. Register it. You're done. Yeah, I like that. All right. Dependency injection makes me nervous. But then I'm a SQL guy, and I automatically think SQL injection, which I know is bad. Mm-hmm. But dependency injection is not bad. That's right. I mean, there's no need to be scared. Just uh, because of injection. That's your afraid yeah, of needles, basically, is a, Richard. Maybe a overly, uh, you know, hard word, right? Uh, yeah, it's a bad word. Bad word. No one likes to be injected. But uh, that's, <laughs> you know, uh, originally they were called uh, inversion of control containers, and Martin Fowler sort of popularized the uh, dependency injection uh, naming of it. But uh, the idea is simply that. Um, before this sort of idea came up, how did you get configuration code? You probably wrote an init method called the name section handler, name value section handler, and some init method pulled the stuff into your code, set a few you know field variables, and off you went. Mm. And so essentially, from this perspective, uh, you were pulling information you know into your class from the outside environment, right? And you had a bunch of infrastructure code sort of unrelated to your business processing maybe tucked away at the bottom of your class. And so this dependency injection or inversion of control is you just write your plain object as you did before, exposes normal properties or constructor arguments, uh, your things you're dependent on. This could potentially just be an int, right, like max results, or it could be a, another object like a DAO class. And to kind of highlight the uh, importance of you know, connecting different layers or connecting different objects together is renamed dependency injection as compared to, I don't know, property setting or something. Just a way to uh, just uh, have a normal object, and then the container looks at it and says, oh, so you have a property called uh, 
you know, max results. Turns out my configuration for creating you has a max results property with the value five. I'm going to set it. And your code is unaware that it's being configured. It's just a normal class. And so that's the beauty of it in some sense. It's not invasive. And the most important part is not so much setting of plain, you know, int and float properties, but setting of different references and building up that object graph and runtime of your entire, you know, application. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. One thing I didn't realize is that Spring has its own expression syntax. Uh, yeah, this is a, a mini you know, language in some sense that lets you do very lightweight scripting. And there's even you know, very sophisticated uh, support for uh, you know, a lot of uh, sophisticated scripting expressions in there. Um, that's very useful, uh, again, you know, as glue layer, right? Uh, scripting right. language is often referred to as glue layer. And um, this is a mini scripting language to a, to a large extent. It's not as complete, obviously, as uh, Python or something like that. But basically, it's just enough scripting to get the job done in one line. So hmm. you can write if statements and you know, other expressions. Also, you know, refer to other objects that Spring is aware of. Uh, that's also quite powerful. And uh, a little unsold feature, but uh, it comes in very handy uh, very frequently. And um, the validation framework. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Um, essentially, um, the validation problem is uni- you know, not unique to the web layer or the WinForms layer. But if you look at the two, they both have very different approaches to validation. And so what this is is just, you know, uh, environment agnostic way to specify, you know, what is valid, right? Right. Uh, Basically, you know, you can use the expression language to say, well, you know, the users entered this, you know, this information. I collected it, let's say, in a form request class. On a web page, we're talking. Yeah, let's say on a web page, right? And then you have rules that basically say, okay, the properties of this class should satisfy the rules that you specify. And, you know, there's a lot of sophistication in terms of saying, well, only apply these rules if, for example, a particular checkbox is uh, checked. So you can group things hierarchically. You can make them dependent on particular state of the object you're validating. Uh, you can do it programmatically. People frequently do it in an XML syntax to separate the rules from the actual code in case they'd like to change it frequently. Uh, and so in terms of, let's say, ASP.NET, uh, it gives you, you know, also little uh, uh, tags to place appropriately the results of the validation. You know, did it pass? If it failed, what would you like to say? And, you know, the specific presentation nuances you know, as well uh, of how you would like to say it, you know, all in one list, a bulleted list. Or, or, or we things we like just that. use Peter Bloom's validation controls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're uh, awesome. That, the thing is, you know, then, you know, for example, what do you do when you want to do that same validation on the server side? Yeah. Right? Typically, you're not going to just trust the app, right? So it's good to have this reusable component, let's say, just this core validation True. stuff. Different. Yeah. Different. Mark, you talked earlier about the Anahibernate integration, but there's a few other modules in Spring.net that I'm not particularly familiar with. Uh, well, one of them is interesting to me right away is the Ajax module. But uh, let's spend some time on that. And then I want to talk a bit about Tibco, because I've heard of Tibco, but really never dealt with them. Okay, sure. Uh, the Ajax integration is, you know, one simply one class, but it's very powerful, and it's probably just the start of some additional work we're going to do. Um, there's already quite powerful features uh, in uh, ASP.NET uh, AJAX for uh, gaining access to web services in your JavaScript. And what uh, we do is essentially, again, in this idea of portable service abstractions, uh, you can have a class that doesn't implement any web service interface um, now be exposed in JavaScript via this little uh, configuration utility, let's say. So what it means is in your JavaScript, you can then refer to your service layer 
uh, straight away, right? Uh, without having to actually have it be a web service. Under the covers, we generate the stuff to make it a web service, but you don't actually see that. So in terms of client-side Ajax development, it, you know, or the, the service-side counterpart, looks, you know, very transparent in, in, that, in that regard. Of course, there's still a remote procedure call, and you should design your interfaces with the fact in mind. Uh, but uh, again, it saves you the plumbing of taking an existing class and having to sort of adorn it with web methods in order to make it easily exposed in Ajax. Plus, you know, now, of course, you get all the benefits of the container. Basically, you can configure it any way you want. You can apply all these AOP services to it, like logging and what have you. So it's sort of just, you know, again, one of the other sort of portable service abstractions that's adapted to a particular environment. In this case, uh, you know, the client-side uh, JavaScript environment. Wow, that's powerful stuff. So, and you, you say you, you're nowhere near done yet, right? Well, you know, that part actually we are going to release in the 1.1 release because so many users have found that one class so powerful. And uh, that's kind of, you know, the stepping stone. We'll see, you know, in, in the Ajax space where we go. But, you know, because configuration and AOP are already such powerful concepts, just putting in these appropriate hooks into that environment already, you know, gives you a huge bang for the buck. So the roadmap for that, I think, is, 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 is still quite open. Well, and now all this technology is pretty new. It's, I, I get the sense you're, you're finding out what people are doing with it and going, oh, okay, why don't we go this way then? Yeah, I think, though, the common theme is, you know, people like to, you know, configure their objects in this way, apply the AOP services, and also have these, these portable abstractions, not having to code for a particular environment, whether it be WCF or web services or... We can even export, you know, as a you know, enterprise services one one uh, you know, application, which is really a pain in the butt if you've ever done it before, right? Because no. you have to do all this registration, and uh, we just do all that programmatically, and off you go, make a com assembly. Well, and I really like the thought that you just don't have to choose. I don't have to get married to this library. I'm now set up in such a way that when I figure out that it isn't working, I can switch. Or, in fact, find out that it could be better by switching. Uh, yeah, you can defer your architectural choices. Or, for example, you can support multiple at the same time. There's no reason you can't export one object as a web service and .NET remoting service simultaneously. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it's quite powerful. And so this Ajax you know, is you know, basically uh, giving you a lot of that configuration. And, uh, and it should be noted that it also works with .NET 1.1. Yeah, and if you're really hardcore, you can go, we support 1.0 as well for AOP Ouch. and dependency injection. Service Pack 3 just came out. No kidding. For 1.0, yeah. And localization is sort of like that, too. I mean, a lot of the features are beneficial to ASP.NET 1.X, but not so much to 2.0, or is that a misstatement? Um, you know, the, there are definitely, I think, hardcore techie issues. The lead developer for ASP.NET work in... Uh, Spring had with the localization in one one, and less so, but to some extent, still in two zero. Uh, one feature I know, for example, that uh, is is I, you know, very nice is image localization. I believe that isn't handled well in two zero, but uh, mm. probably should defer to a better expert on localization than than myself. For okay. That. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, the Tibco stuff. Let's right? go to Tibco. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Well, exactly. That's a huge is, uh, topic. Yeah, TIBCO and uh, NMS are actually related. Basically, these are messaging middleware. Uh, TIBCO is a middleware vendor. Uh, they've grown into being an application integration provider, SAO, Stack. Uh, and one of their core products, essentially, is uh, EMS, Enterprise Messaging Service. It's like MSMQ, just you know, another vendor, and is very popular in the financial community. They have uh, Java bindings and .NET bindings, uh, you think even Perl bindings, a lot of language bindings, basically. Can I be the acronym police here? And you've used the, the term SAO a couple of times. I don't believe we define oh, that. Oh, sorry. I, I, I uh, flipped it around. SOA, service-oriented architecture. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, uh, all right, all right. The acronym. Vocal dyslexia. That's <laughs> exactly. a disease terrible that strikes 10 out of 1 Americans, 15 every minute, you know. Yeah, maybe we can go back and edit that part. <laughs> it's embarrassing, right? <laughs> acronym soup. That's okay. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, an NMS is called the .NET Messaging Service. It's really just a set of APIs uh, 
to do uh, messaging. And um, this is the ability to send messages from one consumer, or from one producer to an consumer, consumer typically in an asynchronous manner. So you sort of publish a message, you assume that when the message broker, which is part of the messaging infrastructure, gets it, it's safe and it can go on its way to its final destination. Much like you assume once you put something in a database, it's safe and you don't worry about it anymore. And um, when you're looking at interop scenarios, uh, one of the options that comes up is messaging. Because messaging is sort of a granddaddy to a lot of uh, the interop uh, you know, stories. And what you know, this support does is basically is it takes TIBCO's uh, you know, API uh, for messaging and adds a few features to it to make it easy for you to exchange um, objects, basically, between uh, you know, producers and consumers. So much like a SOAP message's XML format, you get to decide what's in there. You need some way to make sense of it, which is XML schema. It's more uh, loosely coupled uh, in messaging environment. Basically, you essentially have a hash table that you exchange between two platforms. It's up to you to make sense of what that is. So these converters provide some structure around the sort of opaque message payload. Uh, you could do SOAP over JMS, for example. Some people do that, uh, but it hasn't really caught on. Usually, it's very popular in the financial community to um, come up with their own particular custom message format uh, as compared to you know using a schema or following a SOAP header uh, format. And so what's very nice in this regard is that on the Java side is the corresponding framework. And so if you're doing interop via messaging, you can basically just uh, look at a mirror image of the entire class hierarchy on both sides and you know uh, code away. So there's big benefit to having you know, Spring Java on the Java side, where this is, you know, goes by the name JMS, and uh, on the .NET side, where you can use TIBCO or NMS, which is portable uh, interfaces that have bindings to ActiveMQ and uh, MSMQ. So it's the abstract interface for messaging, if you will, uh, much like the provider model for ADO.NET defines base interfaces. These are the base interfaces for messaging. So if we support NMS, and through NMS, .NET Message Service, will support you know a whole host of messaging providers simultaneously. Wow, Richard, I bet you're really excited about that. Absolutely, you know, I wouldn't say messages are my life, but this is definitely the issues that we deal with around how we're going to move between these different layers. And you know, uh, Mark, I, we haven't gotten there, and I, we're almost running out of time on this. But you have been straddling these different worlds. I'm always working between the you know different development environments uh, and different operating systems. But you also you've been involved with both Spring on the Java side and Spring.net is uh, obviously your baby. Uh, I've got to think that a lot of this technology just makes that whole platform differentiators uh, in uh, immaterial. It doesn't matter. You know, to a large extent, you, you get a lot of value if the application framework that sits on top of the core class isn't the same. But at the end of the day, you're still going to need experts on each platform to know all the nuances, to know what's going on there. Absolutely. But in terms of you know, the high-level you know, reuse, let's say, in terms of making a common language across teams uh, and essentially making the transfer you know, of information more fluid, uh, it's a great benefit. It's a great help. Uh, you know, there's an article I wrote on InfoQ, which you could, uh, you know, search for, which discusses very heavily the interop uh, in uh, using messaging between Java and .NET and Spring on both sides. So in case you're interested in a little bit more on that, there's a sample app uh, that, uh, you know, discusses uh, this and a nice reflection-based converter to convert uh, objects to and from messages. You know, this is this brings up a side tangent, which is, you're obviously a dot, uh, a Java guy who made the jump to .NET. What do you still work with um, Java shops who who aren't so convinced still? Uh, convinced of what? Switching Con to .NET? Yeah, well, convinced that uh, you know that that a lot of the more interesting development is happening in .NET these days. I think you know, uh, you know, in terms of companies itself, usually what I've seen is there's a very established culture to begin with. So. People have a huge history in server-side Java and a huge history in client-side .NET or, or MSC, in particular financial services. And that probably isn't going to change. 
uh, in terms of like you know coffee talk, I think people do see a lot of innovation coming from the Microsoft side, and the, you know, the Java community acknowledges that. You know, work with generics and also the new uh, runtime that's coming out to support dynamic languages. These are very innovative technologies, so it doesn't go unnoticed, right? But um, well, yeah. where's the innovation on the Java side? Yeah, I'm starting to lose a little touch with the Java side, but uh, the innovation, I think uh, a lot of it is happening uh, more on the, uh, the the server side, basically, right? There isn't anything close to, like, you know, uh, Windows Presentation Foundation. Uh, it's really focusing on, for example, defining standards for ORM solutions. You know, Microsoft with object spaces has been incredibly slow, to say the least, in coming out, but, right. you know, so there, there are these differentiators. Well, I guess what I mean is, you know, where is it? I mean, you mentioned generics. That's a, that's definitely a server-side relevant uh, technology. You know, the implementation of generics in Java is extremely limited. How come it's still, in 2007, so limited? I don't know. I think yeah. the aspects of, you know, the, uh, the community process and then favoring, you know, some sort of conservative approach, which the details uh, I, I can't provide. No, no, I, yeah, it's a rhetorical. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and I've also gotten a sense that you know, there seem to be some energy in the Java community around almost slowing down. It's like we're innovating so fast here, we're causing ourselves grief and in, in, in sense of instability. No, and, I, I mean there is a typical. I don't. I personally don't see that. Right. I mean, you know, I think they're they're. I don't see that that instability. It's certainly not like it was. And, and the flip side of this is that you know, uh, innovation is great, and you know, there certainly is a, a, a very big ecosystem in the .NET world around. I mean, the Java world around open open source projects. A lot of ideas you know, come from there, uh, and you can see this actually. You know, uh, you know what's happening with the the enterprise um, the, the enterprise libraries from Patterson Practices, how they're absorbing. Dependency injection and AOP from the community, yeah. And in some sense, the larger the community, the larger the base of ideas feeding into what worked and what didn't work. So in that sense, it's great, right? There's a rich pool to take from. I think that pool is, you know, uh, larger on the Java side. If, if that means something, it's up for you know people to to decide. But uh, well, what about what about Sun? Doesn't Sun still own Java? Uh, yeah. Are they uh, still developing new versions and new features, or have they stopped? No, no. They developed new versions. Version 6 is out now. They talk about version 7, which might have closures uh, as a syntactic enhancement. But closures. I, yeah, I'm not really up on the latest uh, okay. uh, goings-on and what is coming in Java 7, for example. Uh, a lot well, of we ought to we ought to talk to Ted or somebody about that. You know, we haven't we haven't even talked about Java on the show in a long, long time. Yeah, so I'd be interested to know. Definitely to, to get a good uh, brain dump from, from Ted on that. Yeah. So, Mark, what's the future for Spring.net? It's been a couple of years since we talked about it when you just started out. Uh, I know you've moved over to Interface 21. Uh, yeah, this is uh, great news for, for, for me and for the Spring uh, community at large. Uh, uh, what this means is, you know, uh, there's a dedicated uh, support and uh, training and you know, development around Spring.net. Right. So what this has allowed us to do is, you know, make a make a roadmap for the next release that uh, we can live to. So in the, the summer August time frame, we hope to get the one one release out, which compared to the one zero release has you know a whole host of stuff which we've been talking about: the transaction management, the ASP.NET framework, uh, the the, uh, the data access abstractions for ADO.NET, uh, the service abstraction. So it's quite a big chunk and really brings. You know, the Spring.net side on par with what is on the uh, the Java side, which is also uh, part of Interface Twenty One. Uh, yeah, uh, it's an open source project, but they employ a lot of the uh, core developers and essentially, you know, sustain the project. So, pardon me for being crude, but you give this software away. How do you make a living? Yeah, I was just about to ask you that. <laughs> Yeah, the the business model is around support, much like uh, a Red Hot model. Right. Short summary of it. It's the simplest way to describe it is. Uh, yeah. yeah. Remember, yeah, get you know, some the, help. The, the spring, you know, spring on the Java side is essentially ubiquitous. There are Forrester reports that say, you know, sixty-three percent of all server-side Java development is using Spring. These are huge companies that are using it. They want support. Right. Wow. And so great. yeah, having experts in one place that you can get a service contract from, that's important. 
Mm-hmm. So getting back to what Richard said about Interop, you think it's easier for a Java shop to move to .NET having Spring .NET there? Uh, certainly, there, they're already there, using there, it. There is one example I know of where uh, they move are moving to .NET, and they were a Java shop, and we're using Spring, and this makes the transition uh, very natural. Uh, so anytime there's a mixed environment, whether it's you're porting over to .NET right completely, or they're uh, coexisting. You know, there's huge benefits to having the same application framework on both sides. Excellent. Well, uh, is there any anything else you want to add before we uh, before we wrap it up here, Mark? No. I, any shout outs or? Uh, yeah, yeah. I would like to you know, thank all of the uh, you know community for giving feedback on the forums. That's been invaluable, and uh, also the uh, kind of core developers who are very active at the moment: Eric Eichinger, Alex Jovic, and Bruno Baya. All right. And with that, uh, that brings another show to a conclusion. And Mark, thanks very much for being with us today. We learned a lot, and I hope the listeners did too. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC, yes, I'm a 